Let us hear from the word of the Lord from a familiar psalm, Psalm 46. Let's say this together. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth mounts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And that same God who created everything with a word could utter one little word and destroy it all. But yet he doesn't give us a word of catastrophe, but of comfort. So if you are feeling vulnerable, God is your refuge. If you're feeling weak, he is your strength. And if you are feeling troubled, he is there with you. So brothers and sisters, let us remind each other who our God is and the hope we have in him. A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood. Of mortal is prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth see to work us woe his craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal and if we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. You ask, you ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. The Lord of hosts, his name. From age to age the same. And he must win the battle. Hallelujah. 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 And though, and though this world with devils fell, should threaten to undo. For God hath will His truth to triumph through us. If you believe that, sing it out. And though, and though this world with devils fail, should threaten to undo
tremble not for him his rage we can endure for lo his doom is sure one little word shall fail let goods and kindred go this mortal life also the body they may kill God's truth abideth still His kingdom is forever Amen, God's truth does abide forever Hello, my name is Chase Jacobs I'm one of the folks on staff here at Desert Springs Church, and I want to thank you for making the time to watch this pre-recorded worship service. Desert Springs Church exists to spread God's glory broader and deeper, and even in the age of coronavirus, that mission continues unabated. This online service, as it were, is one of the ways that we are trying to further that mission, so is our regular prayer for all of you, and there are a number of other platforms that we as staff and leaders in this church are working hard at to try and keep you equipped and encouraged in this mission. Those include family worship guides, uh, update emails, devotional newsletters. If you want to find out more about any of those offerings, you can just go to our website, dscabq.com. There's a red banner at the top. You can sign up for those different ministries that we are providing in this strange time. And I know you, church family, you're doing as much as you can to further the mission of our church. I have heard from so many of you that you are praying for us. I know that you are trying to love one another. You're trying to love your neighbors. And one more important way that you contribute to the mission of our church is through your continuing financial support of our ministry. Many of you have asked how our church is doing financially, and we as leaders want to keep you as informed as possible about the financial status of our church. You should have seen some numbers in an update email that Pastor Ron sent not too long ago, and you would have seen that our church is uh, about 10% down in our average giving. And in one way, that's a really encouraging number. Uh, with everything that's going on, that means that, that so many of you have continued to support our church financially, that we are only 10% down. So I want to commend you. I want to thank you for your commitment and your faithfulness to the needs of the saints. And I want you to know that we as a church are taking every opportunity to cut expenses in whatever ways that we can. We are trying to be wise stewards of the resources that we have in this time. We've put a, discretion, a freeze on all discretionary spending. We are trying to streamline uh, all of our efforts in what ways we can. But we still have a lot of expenses as a ministry that we, we just can't cut. We have utilities. We have salaries of all of our staff. We have missionaries that we support around the world. And we have uh, benevolence needs that we want to continue to meet. We want to be able to meet your needs, church. And we want to be able to meet the needs of our community. And so it's very important that we uh, continue to be able to provide these services and these ministries. Now, if you've been affected by the coronavirus crisis financially, I'm not talking to you. 
okay? If you have lost your job, if your financial status has changed somehow with everything that's going on, then of course our primary concern is just your welfare. And if you need anything, please reach out to us and and we will do our best to figure out how we can provide for you in this time. But I do know that perhaps some of you, your regular giving habits have just been disrupted by our not meeting together as a church on Sunday morning. So you have not lost your job by God's grace. Your financial situation really hasn't changed, but it's not as easy as just dropping off your check in the box in the back of our worship center every Sunday as you come in. So, so if that's you, if you uh, are still in a position to give, you've still been fully intending on giving, things have just gotten kind of weird with everything that's going on, let, let me just give you a little nudge. Your giving to the, the work of this ministry is as important now as it's ever been. And so if you are one of those people that, that gives regularly, you just can't give in person, let me encourage you with some of the other means that we've made available for you so that you can continue giving regularly. If you would prefer to keep giving by check, you can mail those checks to our office. Our finance administrator, Gail, has even offered to send you pre-stamped, pre-addressed envelopes that will come right to our church office. So if you would like those envelopes from Gail, email gail at dscabq.com. She'll make sure you get those and we can make sure that your giving doesn't get interrupted with not being able to come into our building But I'd also ask you to consider switching to one of our online giving platforms. Uh, If you go to our website, on the top right of the menu bar, you'll see a little tab that says Give. And if you click that, you can set up uh, an online giving, regularly recurring, automatic withdrawal from either a card or from your checking account. You can do that one time, you can do that in a recurring donation, but you can just go to our website and set that up. Or another option is you can actually use your phone to set up that online giving. So you can just text, send a text message that says Next DSC to the number 1-888-364-GIVE. And you just follow the prompts that come up on that text message. That is the same platform that we use in our online giving. It's very secure. It's a great way where you can just set that up and make sure that uh, the needs of our church are met. So if that applies to you, and you know if it does, let me just encourage you to take a moment and maybe even hit pause on the video and take care of that right now so that you can make sure that you are continuing to support this mission faithfully and we can continue to do what it is that we are called to do. And one more thing, let me just add. I know that some of you are watching this right now and you are not a member in uh, our church community, but you have been blessed by this offering of these pre-recorded online services. Maybe your church has not been able to gather. Maybe you don't go to church, um, but this time has led you to seek out the things of God and you have, in his providence, been led to our website. We are so glad. We're so glad that so many of you have been blessed by our putting these up on the internet. And I'd like to ask if you uh, have been blessed by this ministry, you yourself are in a position to give. I'm not asking you to take away from the church that you belong to, but if you have resources that you can contribute to our mission so that we can keep doing that, let me encourage you to take advantage of some of these options that we have to further the mission that God has called us to as a church. Everyone keeps saying during this time that we are all in this together, and that is no less true with regards to our financial giving. So again, let me just thank you for your partnership with us in the gospel, and we, we trust that God will 
work through that and in that to help us fulfill what he has called us to do, even in this time as we gather together, gather together to hear from his word, to be built up. So let's pray that God would use this time to that end. God, we praise you for the promise that you have made that nothing can stand against the church that you have established. Not even the gates of hell themselves can withstand the advance of your kingdom. And so we praise you for that and we humbly place all of our trust in you. God, it is your provision, it is your work that helps us further this mission. So we ask that you would continue to provide for the needs of our church. And not just for the various ministries that we have, but for every one of your saints, Lord. And we ask now that you would equip us with the hope that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you would use this time for all of us, wherever we are, however we're watching this, Lord, you would use this next hour for your glory, that it truly would spread your glory broader and deeper. Amen. Now, church, hear this from Exodus 19. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, On that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and they came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. And the Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Let us once again join our voices, sing to our King. Oh, worship the King, all glorious above. Oh, gratefully sing His wonderful love, our shield and defender, the ancient of days, pavilioned in splendor and girded with praise. Tell of his might, oh sing of his grace, whose robe is the light, whose canopy space, his chariots of wrath, the deep thunder clouds born, dark is his path on the wings of the storm. Oh measureless might, ineffable love. While angels delight to worship above Thy mercies, how tender, how firm to the end Maker, defender, redeemer, and friend Frail children of dust and feeble as frail In Thee do we trust, nor find Thee to fail the humbler creation, though feeble, delays the 
true adoration shall sing to thy praise. Oh, worship the King. Oh, worship the King. All glorious above. Oh, gratefully sing his wonderful love. Our shield and defender, the ancient of days, pavilioned in splendor and girded with praise. From 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer, greatest treasure of my longing soul. My God, like you, there is no other. True delight is found in you alone. Your grace, oh well, too deep to fathom your love it exceeds the heavens reach your truth a fount of perfect wisdom my highest good and my unending My rock and my redeemer, strong defender of my weary heart, my sword to fight the cruel deceiver, and my shield against his hateful darts. My song when When tides of sorrow rise, my joy when trials are about. 
your faithfulness, my refuge in the night. Oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer, gracious Savior of my ruined life, my guilt and cross laid on your shoulder in my place you suffered bled and died and you rose the grave and death I conquered you broke my bonds of sin and shame you rose you rose the grave and praying to God in song, in that song, addressing our Lord and our Redeemer. And now let me lead us in a different prayer. This from the Valley of Vision book of Puritan prayers. Pray with me. My God, I bless thee that thou hast given me the eye of faith to see you as Father, to know you as a covenant God to experience your love planted in us. Faith casts my anchor upwards where I trust in you. Be pleased to live and move within me, breathing in my prayers, inhabiting my praise, speaking in my words, moving in my actions, causing me to grow in grace. I bounteous goodness O oh Lord, has helped me to believe. But my faith is weak and wavering. Its light is dim. Its steps are sometimes tottering. Lord, fan this divine spark into a glowing flame. When faith sleeps, my heart becomes unclean. The fount of every loathsome desire a noxious tree of deadly fruit. Oh, Lord, awake faith and put forth its strength until all heaven fills my soul and all impurity is cast out. May it be so, Lord, because of Jesus and for your glory. Amen. Let us continue in prayer through song and confess together. Out of my bondage, sorrow and night, Jesus, I come, Jesus, I come into thy freedom, gladness and light. Jesus, I come to thee. Out of my 
thy sickness into thy health out of my wanting into thy wealth out of my sin and into thy son Jesus I come to thee Jesus I come to thee out of my shameful failure and loss Jesus, I come, Jesus, I come Into the glorious gain of thy cross Jesus, I come to thee And out of our sorrows and into thy bond Out of my storms and into thy calm Out of distress to jubilant song, Jesus, I come to thee. Jesus, I come to thee. Out of fear, and out of the fear and dread of the tomb, Jesus, I come. Jesus, I come. Into the joy and light of thy home, Jesus, I come to thee. Out of the depths of ruin untold, into the peace of thy sheltering fold, ever thy glorious face to behold, as Jesus, I come. Jesus, I come to thee. Cry out to him. Jesus, I come to thee. Yes, Jesus, we come to you afresh today. We thank you that you have come to us. What's more, that you even dwell within us by your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you're with us. And we come to your word afresh again this day. Lord, to look upon it intently, to give our attention to it, to hear from you afresh. We pray you would speak. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it was Franklin Delano Roosevelt at his first presidential inauguration in 1933, who said the now famous words, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. It's a provocative statement in any historical context, even more provocative since he said it right in the middle of the Great Depression. One can consider FDR's famous line a couple of different ways. On the one hand, Roosevelt defined what he meant by fear in that now famous statement. He, he called it nameless, unjustified terror. So he was discouraging panic, not just any kind of fear. And a few years into the Great Depression, there was justifiable panic going on. 
FDR not only wanted to calm down unreasonable panic, but he also wanted to provide the American people with a bold rallying cry. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And it kind of worked. People, well, it was well received. On the other hand, though, these were days when many people were genuinely and rightly afraid of terrible circumstances, afraid of never finding work again, afraid of losing home, afraid of the prospect of sending their own children to live with someone else so that they would simply survive, afraid of societal breakdown and chaos, afraid of the unknown, especially how long it would last. And we know now it would last another six years after FDR's first speech. So on that more critical evaluation of FDR's slogan, it seems almost foolishly optimistic, if not cruel, to say in those days the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Well, in a fallen world, Great Depression or not, There is a lot that is frightening. There's danger, threat, and trouble on every side. I've pondered before that for many of us, there seems to be a bell-shaped curve in relation to fears in the course of our lives. Think of three eras. Little kids have lots of fears. They're afraid of the dark, they're afraid of boogeymen, they're afraid of monsters. They're terrified of most villains in the Disney movies. They have scary dreams. They cry a lot. Then there's this strange era, maybe in the mid-teen years, and for some it stretches into their 20s or beyond, and they don't think they have much to fear at all, especially the boys. They'll just keep jumping that skateboard higher and higher until something goes wrong and something gets hurt. They might drive way faster than their driving skills should warrant. With their bodies still being at, you know, almost their peak, they can't imagine serious illness or death. And so they roll their eyes at those who can't do these things with their bodies or complain of these aches or talk about certain fears. Now their slogan is no fear. At least that was a cool saying uh, back a couple decades ago. But then there's this other side of the bell curve and you could just call it the rest of life. And these people have gone through some things. These people have seen a thing or two. They have the scars to prove that this is a rough and tumble world we're in. They've been surprised by a thing or two, and so they know now to not be surprised when they're surprised. And yet with this coronavirus crisis over the last couple of months, even the most seasoned sufferers among us have surely found themselves a little startled, alarmed, jolted, surprised. Sarah's Grandma, my wife's grandma, is in her 90s. She just recently told my wife, 
I haven't seen anything like this. And she was around for the Great Depression and two world wars and everything else that went on in the meantime. But regardless of whether we're in an era of COVID-19 or not, and regardless of whether your fears are rational or irrational, real or imagined, and regardless of whether you tend to deny and ignore what is legitimately frightening, or you tend, on the other hand, to rather obsessively look for new things to be afraid of. The question is, what do we do with our fears? Not do we have them. What do we do with our fears? Where can we take them? Where can we find help for them? Well, Psalm 91, our passage for today, it never uses words like fear or worry, but, but that's certainly the idea behind the psalm. It's what's lurking in the background. Because Psalm 91 addresses real dangers and possible threats. And from there it shows us where we find shelter and comfort and protection even amidst those dangers and threats. Let me read it for us. Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread in the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample under feet. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Well, this beautiful psalm, as I said, concerns God's protection and intimate care of his people within their troubles. On the level of a literary structure, it falls into three parts according to who is speaking and to whom they are speaking. So notice verses 1 and 2, there the psalmist speaks for himself as he speaks to God. I will say to the Lord. But then verses 3 to 13, the longest section, there the psalmist speaks to you, the reader. And he says, God will, he will... He, he will do this or that for you. 
But then the last few verses, there God himself speaks to you. God directly speaks to you. God says, I will, I will, I will. And what this flow does is it builds, it swells. There's a a progression. It grows in intensity and comfort and assurance. Let's start with the psalmist's example. The psalmist's example in verses 1 and 2, it's an example of trust in a caring God. And the principle is stated in verse 1, but then it's put to work in verse 2. Verse 1, here's the principle or the promise. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Now I confess it sounds a little bit like a riddle to me. I've always been a little perplexed about this verse because it sounds to me like it's saying the same thing twice. It sounds to me like it's saying, if you dwell in God's presence, you will dwell in God's presence. And the cynic would say to that, duh, but it's not senseless repetition, nor is it even just Hebrew poetry, which often uses parallelism. Now, what this is saying is, if you dwell in the shelter that is God, you will truly abide under his shadow. The second half ratchets it up. But this is where you must dwell. You must dwell. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. Recall from last week, if you were with us, in Psalm 90, verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Remember, we said that that was very important to, in light of the historical background. It's a psalm written by Moses, that is Psalm 90. And of course, Moses, his, well, the, the last one-third of his life, and certainly when he wrote Psalm 90, were those years of the wilderness wanderings. Now, our psalm this week, Psalm 91, isn't attributed to anyone, not explicitly. The old rabbis attributed it to Moses. In fact, they attributed all of the psalms of the 90s to Moses. But whether it's Moses or not, what does matter, and what is obvious, is that wilderness motif continues from Psalm 90 into Psalm 91 as well. God is your dwelling. Yes, the promised land was coming for the people of Israel. That would be their dwelling place, and God would dwell within them. But fundamentally... God must be your dwelling place. He must be your home. He must be where you live. Your address must be God. God is your dwelling place. And that's where you find shelter. That's where there is shadow. Now that word shelter, you see that in verse 1. Most of us can appreciate that. You go camping, you want some shelter. Maybe you're on a long hike and a storm comes in. You're thankful to find some abandoned cabin where you might shelter for a little while. That word shadow, though, that's a concept that's lost on most of us. Most of us who leave our air-conditioned cars and walk into an air-conditioned building and then later walk back to our air-conditioned cars. 
But if you're in a desert, traveling on foot or camel, finding shade for people like that, people in the wilderness, finding shade can be a matter of life and death. We said last week that Numbers 20 is a likely setting for the writing of Psalm 90. Well, if we read on into Numbers 21, we see that it might fit with Psalm 91 quite nicely. Because in Numbers 21, there is a lot of travel among the people of Israel. You just keep seeing these phrases. They camped, they set out, they camped again. They set out, they went on, they passed through, they went through this wilderness, they tried to go through this occupied land, they settled down there. Yet with all that kind of movement in a desert, shelter and shade are massively important. And if that's physically true, then with God it is also infinitely more spiritually true. God must be our shelter, our shadow. Our life, death without them. In God's presence, there's safety and there's security. That's the principle or the promise of verse 1. And verse 2 puts it to work. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Now we've got two new metaphors for God's protection. Refuge and fortress. I mentioned that Numbers 21 had a lot of travel going on in it. It also has a lot of war. Israel goes to war with three kingdoms in Numbers 21. The battles are described quite quickly, but we can imagine if if the narratives were drawn out, we could imagine that there would be references to strategic places of refuge in these battles or, or quickly assembled forts that they had made. But again, the point of the language in Psalm 91 is that however important a fortress is for a battle, the Lord must be that for you. He must be your protection, your covering, your defense, what you run into and are saved. And so the psalmist not only believes that to be true, but he says it, he confesses it, he prays it. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. That's putting it into action. We should tell God we trust him. Even when we should trust him more. When there's a modicum of trust, it'll be good if before God we tell him we we trust him. Like the man who said, I believe, help my unbelief. We can do the same. And perhaps we can at times leave off the second half and just say, Lord, I trust you. That would be personal resolve and commitment as much as it would be a confession before the Lord. I will say, Lord, I trust you. So let's all learn from the psalmist's example here. Both his example to believe that the Lord is a shelter, a shadow, a refuge, a fortress. And also to confess it, to, to resolve, to trust the Lord, and, and now to encourage others to do the same. That's what he does next. So number two, 
Consider the psalmist's encouragement to you, verses 3 to 13. It's an encouragement about God's thorough and intimate care for you. And as I already said, notice the language shifts starting in verse 3 as the reader is now addressed. He will deliver you. He will cover you. He personalizes it. He even individualizes it. In the Hebrew, all the U's, the Y-O-U's of verses 3 to 13 are singular. Not you, plural. You. You individual. You on the other side. You who are reading this or hearing this. If you're familiar with the Psalms, you might know that that's not quite the norm in the Psalms. Because so many of them are quite corporate. They're meant to be sing in public. In praise together, we sing, let us praise. But Psalm 91 is a little unusual for this long address to a single reader. So we should all feel the personalness of that. It's as if the psalmist let us sit in on his brief prayer and confession to God in verse 2, but now he turns his gaze from heavenward Directly to you, to you. And he wants to address you. If you're a believer, he's addressing you. And he goes to great lengths to tell you what God's care is like. The imagery just continues. The imagery of this, verses 3 and 4. You as a baby bird and God as a caring mother bird. He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler. Fowler is a bird catcher. He will cover you with his pinions or feathers, verse 4. And under his wings you will find refuge. It's astounding that God would ever refer to himself as a mother bird. But it actually happens to be one of his favorite word pictures for his care, for his people. Moses spoke of it in Deuteronomy 32 like this. He, that is God, found Israel in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, Bearing them on its pinions, the Lord alone guided him. What a beautiful picture. It's throughout the Psalms. You just get passing phrases. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. In the shadow of your wings I take refuge. And we have to once again catch the significance of the imagery. I'm no ornithologist. I had to look that up. It's someone who studies birds. But I can reckon that a mother's, mother bird's covering over her chicks protects them from the elements, the heat, the cold, the rain, protects them from predators. A hawk flying by might want to grab one of those. And her protection then is not just caring and cute, but it's essential. Without it, her young wouldn't survive. 
And yet there is something beautifully tender and caring and nurturing about the imagery, even if the average bird isn't conscious about tenderness or care. But our God is. Our God is deliberately caring and tender. And so this is what it's like to come under his care. He covers, he protects, he nurtures, he cares for us, he warms, he is with us. But another imagery portrayed here is is of God's strength. That he's a warrior. Verse 4, his faithfulness is a shield and buckler. That's good because verse 5, you'll not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day. Verse 7, a thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Remember, Numbers 21 records three battles with foreign nations. I haven't mentioned yet that all three were victories for Israel. Israel, that toddler of a nation, if you can call it a nation yet. These nomadic people, former slaves in Egypt and sons and daughters of slaves, not professional soldiers, led by Moses, that soft-skinned prince of Egypt who then became a shepherd for 40 years. That's who's leading the way. That's these people and their army. And they not only won these battles in Numbers 21, but they decimated the kingdoms of Erad and Sahan and Og. Any king named Og probably has a pretty tough army. But they were victorious, and victorious because God had wrought the victory. It was God who protected his people. The Lord fell these mighty armies. you got to love verse 8. You will only look with your eyes and see it happen. A thousand just drop. Ten thousand just drop. It reminds us of what Moses said to the people right before the Red Sea. He said, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. And the Lord will not only work on big things like armies, but small things too. Small things that are no less deadly than armies. Verse 5, you'll not fear the terror of the night. Verse 6, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness. Nor the destruction, or literally the plague. The plague that wastes at noonday. Verse 10, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague will come near your tent. Well, this is timely, isn't it? A psalm which comforts us with God's complete protection from pestilence and plague, or what we call today a virus. I mean, this is good timing. Forget those inconvenient masks. Uh, forget the work trying to develop a, a virus. Just get these verses in front of you, name them and claim them, 
as promises for you and that, that coronavirus won't touch you. Right? Well, I don't think so. But let me raise the tension even a little bit more before resolving it. Because the protection of Psalm 91, it's complete, it's comprehensive, it's no evil will even come near you. In fact, God will even commission angels, verse 11 and 12, to protect you from stubbing your toe. That's what it says. He'll command his angels to guard you in all your ways and on their hands. They will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. That's comprehensive care. But the man who wrote that, at some point he died. We don't know who wrote it, but we know he died. Just speaking personally, I've stubbed my toe many times. I once dropped a cinder block on my toe and my toenail fell off. Well, is it because I've not come to dwell in the shelter of the Most High? No, I, I believe I have. Is it because I, I don't trust God as my fortress enough? Well, I do need to trust him more. But I do think it's genuine trust that's there. That's not why the cinder block hit my toe that day. The same dynamics apply to others who are in far worse circumstances than stubbed toes. Cholera did indeed strike London in 1918. The Spanish flu killed Christians and non-Christians alike in 1918. I'm sorry, it was 1854 that cholera hit London. And COVID-19, as of the time of this recording, has taken the lives of 191 on our planet and yet Psalm 91 has not failed and the God of Psalm 91 has not failed us Charles Spurgeon the Baptist preacher of the 19th century he can help us out here commenting on Psalm 91 he tells the story of that time when cholera had broken out in London he says, in the year 1854, when I had scarcely been in London 12 months, the neighborhood in which I labored was visited by cholera, and my congregation suffered. Family after family summoned me to the bedside of the smitten, and almost every day I was called to visit the grave. I gave myself up with youthful ardor to the visitation of the sick, and was sent for from all corners of the district. I became weary in body and sick at heart. My friends seemed failing one by one, and I felt or fancied that I was sickening like those around me. A little more work and weeping would have laid me low like the rest. As God would have it, I was returning mournfully home from a funeral when my curiosity led me to read a paper which was wafered up in a shoemaker's window. It bore in a good, bold handwriting these words. Because thou hast made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High thy habitation, there shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. Spurgeon goes on, The effect upon my heart was immediate. I felt secure, refreshed. 
I went on with my visitation of the dying in a calm and peaceful spirit. I felt no fear of evil, and I suffered no harm. The providence which moved the tradesman to place those verses in his window, I gratefully acknowledge. And in the remembrance of its marvelous power, I adore the Lord my God. You can see where he's going. He did not need the cholera to go away to find comfort. And yet he found comfort. How? Well, he goes on. Just another few sentences. It is impossible that any ill should happen to the man who is beloved of the Lord. The most crushing calamities can only shorten his journey and hasten him to his reward. Ill to him is no ill, but only good in a mysterious form. Losses enrich him, sickness is his medicine, reproach is his honor, death is his gain. No evil in the strict sense of the word can happen to him, for everything is overruled for good. Happy is he who is in such a case. He is secure where others are in peril. I think that's right. The poetically described protection of Psalm 91 with its complete and comprehensive protection, like so many other parts of the Bible, it's, it's not that God keeps us from all trouble, it's that he's with us in all our trouble. It's that he's sovereign over all of our trouble. It's that he has good purposes, even if mysterious, for all of our trouble. And he will do us good, even in and through our trouble. As God himself puts it in the final section of Psalm 91, verse 15, I will be with him in trouble. So whatever came before, the trouble hasn't ceased. God meets him in the trouble. And because of that, we don't have to fear trouble. We don't have to fear that trouble will come. We don't have to fear when it comes. We don't have to fear the smallest, deadliest virus. We don't have to fear the most ruthless army with its piercing arrows. We don't have to fear crashing economies or bumbling governments, not because they don't exist, not because they're not frightening. It's all very frightening. We don't have to fear. Not because, oh, we're certain we're over the curve, as they call it. Or we shouldn't say, we don't have anything to fear. We're America. We got this. No. We don't have to fear because whatever befalls us, our God is good and wise and in control. And so whatever happens, even though it feels quite stormy, it is under his wings. It is in his hands. He is shielding us from what could be worse. In the midst of all our trouble, we find him to be a refuge and a fortress. And isn't this what we find elsewhere in the Bible? The same theme of God's protection in the midst of problems. Psalm 23, he prepares a table for me, a table to banquet and sup 
in the presence of my enemies. In the valley of the shadow of death. Or Psalm 46, which we read earlier. We will not fear, even though the earth gives way and falls into the sea. Why? Because God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Or perhaps maybe most important is Luke 21, where Jesus told his followers, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. Some of you they will put to death. You'll be hated by all for my namesake, but not a hair of your head will perish. Now, either that is silly double talk, or that is beautiful. Even in death, they won't steal a hair that our God does not permit. God protects down to the hairs, even while we go through death. Isn't that Romans 8? What can separate us from the love of Christ? Paul lists a bunch of things, including death and sword. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ and the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's one more reason why we shouldn't adopt a name it and claim it approach to Psalm 91. It's that it's satanic. It's satanic. That's the approach to Psalm 91 that Satan would have you take. Because verses 11 and 12 of Psalm 91 were used and misused by Satan in his temptation of Jesus. So we read in Luke 4, Satan says to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it's written. Then he quotes verses 11 and 12 of Psalm 91. The angels would bear you up like so you wouldn't strike your foot against a stone. Well, Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So Satan essentially said to Jesus, if the principle of Psalm 91 is true and you are who you say you are, surely you'll have divine protection, so prove it. But Psalm 91 wasn't created for that kind of test of God. Jumping off a cliff and expecting God to rescue you was never the plan for King Jesus. What was the plan? Well, the divine plan for the Son of God was that he would eventually from there go to the cross and die and be raised on the third day. And so Satan was offering an alternative, a cross-free, pain-free alternative. He was offering an alternative based on that cheaply banked on wooden literal interpretation of verses in Psalm 91. And there are preachers today who still do the same thing. Ironically missing the fact that Satan has that same kind of interpretation of Psalm 91. That because it says it, we can have it, and then we shouldn't doubt it, that's it. Name it and claim it. Well, it's probably not coincidental that Satan stopped his quotation of Psalm 91 right before getting to the Next verse, he didn't get to verse 13. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. A lion, a serpent, oh my. 
in the context of walking through the wilderness, like in Numbers 21, Moses' day, well, verse 13 would just be a comfort about the real dangers of wild beasts out there that can kill you. But zooming out in the storyline of the Bible, Satan is, to- is called a roaring lion in 1 Peter 5, and he's called a serpent from beginning to the end of the Bible. Remember, it was the serpent that tempted Adam and Eve in the garden that led to the fall. In Genesis 3, God doled out curses on Satan and humanity. But it was in verse 15 where we get what we call the first gospel, the first good news. God told Satan, actually, this good news. Not good news for him, but good news for all those who would believe and be blessed by it. That from the offspring of that woman, there would come one who would bruise the serpent's head or crush the serpent's head. He would bring a final blow, complete defeat. Satan heard that. It was addressed to him. A gospel for us, a declaration of judgment to come for him. And that's what Jesus accomplished in the cross, both our salvation and his judgment. So there's a sense in which Jesus epitomizes Psalm 91 like no one else can. He has perfect trust in his Father, as we see modeled throughout the gospel accounts. As we read those gospel accounts, we see God's protection throughout his life. They try to grab him to kill him, and somehow he slipped through their midst. You say, well, yeah, but eventually they got him. Yeah, but God's protection was through the cross and his death. They didn't break one of his bones There was a limit to what they could do, even though they killed him. And in the resurrection, God proved he was protected. He was exalted. And what that death and resurrection brought about, in the words of verse 13, is that the lion, the serpent, was trampled underfoot. Jesus epitomizes Psalm 91, and yet, get this, Paul can take it up a notch further when he applies the same kind of language to Christians now because of their union with Christ through faith. Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now, you might wonder, is that a step too far? Is this legitimate Bible handling here. Dare we read that much of a theme's later development in Scripture back into a passage which may be one of the earliest Psalms? Well, Old Testament scholar, a guy named Tremper Longman, he says that reading the Bible as a Christian is a bit like watching that movie, The Sixth Sense. Now, if you haven't seen The Sixth Sense with Bruce Willis and you intend to, then you're going to want to plug your ears for the next 10 to 15 seconds while I give away what is the most surprising, most important element of that movie. All right, so go. Plug your ears. I'm going to start talking about it. And for the rest of you, with your ears unplugged, you know what I'm talking about. Bruce Willis's character was dead 
all along, but you don't find out until the end? And that changes everything. How could I not have seen it, you might say? And so you finish watching it the first time, and you immediately begin thinking, when am I going to watch this again? i got to watch it again. i got to see if there are any clues here. And you watch it a second time, and when you're doing that, you're, you're looking at every glance, every conversation. Who's looking at who? Is there eye contact there or not there? And It's all connected with the ending. You're now watching the whole movie with the ending in mind. How can you not? It's a different way to watch a movie than the first time you watched it. Well, with the coming of Christ, his death and resurrection and all that that brings with it, it's so massive. It's so integral. It's so key to the whole story of God that now that it's happened, we can't read the earlier parts without viewing them in light of that key of the story. And unlike watching The Sixth Sense a second time, a third time, a fourth time, which is pretty unsatisfying, reading and hearing the Bible over and over again with this key of Christ firmly in place, well, the story just keeps getting better. It just keeps getting sweeter. It just keeps getting more beautiful and more majestic. And now we go back to Psalm 91 for this last section. A pledge from God himself, verses 14 to 16. I'll read them again. Because he holds fast to me in love, God says, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. You see the progression? You feel the assurance grow from the psalmist's example, which is great enough, to his encouragement directly to you. And if you're a Christian, I'm pointing at you. The psalm does that. You. God does this stuff for you. And now God himself speaks. And now he speaks here, and because we're Christians, we, we read it in light of what Christ has done. And just like we said that Jesus epitomizes all of Psalm 91, you can see in these last few verses how rather uniquely the Father could say these things of his Son. It's a divine declaration that ties a ribbon on the death and resurrection of Jesus. But just like Jesus' victory over Satan, the serpent, can be our victory through faith in Christ, so so too, the Father's acceptance and rescue of Jesus can be ours through faith in Christ. Jesus went through infinitely greater distress than the Israelites in the wilderness. Or we, in a day of COVID-19, he not only was crucified, but he bore the Father's wrath. He also received what what has to be the, the pinnacle and the utmost of deliverance in his resurrection and ascension. So because of his distress, 
Because of his deliverance, we can be all the more sure of God's presence with us and his care for us and his commitment to do us good. He told us about it in Psalm 90. Sorry, Psalm 91. But he has shown it to us in Christ. And God has now made his dwelling place with his people in a new and unprecedented way. If you're a Christian, if you're a genuine Christian, I believe what this psalm says, what it looks like conditions, I believe they're true of you. You you probably want more of them in your life as I do, but they're basically true. You've come to dwell in the shelter of the Almighty. You've made the Lord your dwelling place, your home. You're holding fast to the Lord in love. Oh, yeah, you, we all want to grow in love for the Lord. And let's not minimize the need to grow in love. But 1 Peter 1 and 1 John and other places talk about our love almost as a synonym for belief. We love him. We believe in him. We've come to trust him. We know his name, verse 14. We call to our good and kind and strong God. We have. He has answered when we call again, he will answer. Christian, what worries, fears, anxieties, doubts are you wrestling with right now? Identify them. And then bring them to Jesus. I've been thinking this week about that old hymn, Are you weary and heavy laden? Tell it to Jesus. Tell it to Jesus. Are you grieving over joys departed? Tell it to Jesus alone. He's a friend that's well known. Tell it to Jesus alone. Do you fear the gathering clouds of sorrow? Tell it to Jesus. Are you anxious? What shall be tomorrow? Tell it to Jesus. Are you troubled at the thought of dying? Tell it to Jesus Tell it to Jesus. Tell it to Jesus alone. Let's pray. Yes, Lord, we thank you that we can tell you of our burdens and worries. We thank you, Lord, that you know of threats and possible dangers surrounding us infinitely more than we do. We're thankful we don't know what we don't know. But you know. And you are good. May you evermore be our dwelling place. May we even more come under your wings. May you cover us and protect us. May you do us good as you've promised to do. We thank you for it in Christ's saving name. Amen. Once again, we have a new arrangement of this psalm for us to all consider together and use as further meditation of this word for us. So if you would, again, look down at your Bibles at Psalm 91 as I sing. When in sorrow hills abounding and our souls fill with fright we will run to the Almighty He will defend our lives With His wings the Lord will
will shelter in his shadow will hide he will draw near in our trouble he will make all wrongs right we will trust you our refuge the Though the pestilence is stalking and the plague starts to rise, we will call upon his mercy. He will not leave our side. Though the thousands round are falling, he will hear all our cries, sending angels air surrounding to protect with his mind we will trust you our refuge the Lord when we see the arrows flying and the lion lurks near we will be our place of dwelling his love cast out our shield of sure protection to win our heavenly hell came to crush the scheming serpent and defeat sin and death we will trust you our refuge the Lord all the evil that surrounds us though we see darkest hours every danger every sickness only come as a love the almighty rules from heaven all abide by his plans he remains our truest fortress we are safe in his hands trust you, our refuge, the Lord. Set your heart on the one who has won salvation. Come and give up your life. Come and be satisfied. Set your heart on Let me to thy voice. 
Gentle and tender is our Savior, the lover of our souls. In Luke 13, Jesus takes on this language of a mother bird. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers, gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. How sad. And how dangerous it is outside of his wings. Take note of this. If you're not a Christian, the same God who's so strong to save and rescue is a God who you don't want to trifle with. You don't want to be outside of his care. Don't be like those in the days when Jesus spoke these words in Luke 13. Who would not? Perhaps today you would 
sense that he is gathering you in. And you would do your part in responding in faith and belief and coming under his saving protection and care. If you have questions about what that means and what to do next, or perhaps you'd say, I think in recent days I've, I wouldn't have called myself a Christian a couple of weeks ago, but I think I am now. Well, we would love to help you with first steps in the Christian walk, as we call it, the Christian life. So we'd encourage you again to take advantage of the email address that I mentioned last week, info at dscabq.com. You can just send that and it'll go to one of our pastors on staff and we'd be glad to spend time with you in getting to know you and helping you get to Christ or helping you grow in Christ. Let us know how we can help. We close again with these words, Psalm 91. Let's just hear the Lord say these words to us. I will be with him, with you in trouble. I will rescue you and honor you. With long life, I will satisfy you and show you my salvation. May it be so, Lord.